Welcome back to another episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Dollapenna, and on this episode, we have part two of the interview with Emmy Award-winning sports TV director and producer Peter Steep. Uh, at the end of part one, Peter Steep was segueing into his time with the Stanford 2020 event down in the Caribbean that infamously went belly up when Alan Stanford was arrested on fraud charges and eventually convicted, but Peter Steep, who was on the TV production side of the cricket aspect of that event in the Caribbean, has a very unique take, and you'll get a chance to hear him go in detail about that, as well as numerous other things over the course of his broadcasting career, so we'll get to that interview. But before we get to part two with Peter Steep, I want to remind everybody that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is presented by Dream Cricket. The Dream Cricket store can help you fill up all of your cricket kit requirements, anything you need. Bats, helmets, gloves, pads, jerseys. Go to dreamcricketstore.com now and get 15% off your first order. Dream Cricket Store also offers free shipping on all orders to over $200. So again, go to www.dreamcricketstore.com to take advantage of that great deal today and also... Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is sponsored by Moosa Cricket Stadium, the first turf wicket facility in the state of Texas. For more information, go to www.moosastadium.com. That's Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. At any point working on the broadcast and being part of the Stanford T20, did you see any red flags that made you wonder, where is all this leading to? Well, I was kind of, I, I was just so happy to be part of it and frankly surprised that we never seemed to have a pushback when we asked for something. It was the first high def broadcast of any kind in the Caribbean. You know, we were, we had, you know, we did like 28 cameras. It was, it was great. It was like top level of coverage. And at the time I just thought, well, this guy, he had all the reputation of being this big finance guy. And then, you know, the, the British press started getting on him, I guess, not before the, the $20 million match, but even before that with him, you know, hanging out in the, with the players' wives and the, some of the stuff that, that, he's, that they claim that he did with, you know, going into the dressing rooms, which is supposed to be sacrosanct before a match. And things like that made me think, well, the guy's a little bit rough around the edges, but if he's got the money, why not? So I de- but personally, I never saw any red flags. I was paid. I had some interaction with him, not much. That was left to some of the other people that were arranged with it, uh, that had made the arrangements. But overall, I thought it was one of the great experiences of my broadcasting career. I thought it was fabulous. And it was just a shame that it went away or the way it shaped out that it did. That $20 million match was extraordinary. You know, I mean, we, we got asked to do, in addition to the regular broadcast, Stanford said to us, well, we want to bring this to as much as possible. We want to make the American audience interested in cricket. He was, you know, he knew about that at the time. So he said, what we'll do is we'll, we'll do a separate broadcast with U.S. coverage into the U.S. only. And we all looked around each other at the production table. Okay. Um, so what he did, he paid for a market analysis. He paid some company a boatload of money to go out and figure out as an experiment what would be the most beneficial place to put a specialized broadcast into the US for cricket. So they spat, they put all the information into a computer, spat it all out. Colorado Springs, it turns out, Peter, was the, uh, was the ideal place. So he then went to, co- he got these marketing people to go to Colorado Springs and put the 
posters up and the banners on the side of the buses and in the pubs. And we hired a guy to host the US coverage who'd never even seen cricket, much less been involved in it. But that didn't really matter. We just wanted him to have some fun and bring this American perspective to this flashy game that was coming from the, from Antigua every day. So part of that was him doing humorous or not so humorous pieces, you know, apart from the cricket, which we had fun making. The, the best one, of course, was he wanted to go out and stand on the ground and with a bat and try and play cricket. So we got him all pads and helmets on there. And we had Kirtley Ambrose and Courtney Walsh bowling at him. Now, those two guys bowling in tandem back in the day would just make batsmen not have sleep the night before they were supposed to play. Now, they weren't doing anything like they were when they were playing full time, but just the Kirtley Ambrose off three pace run up is still the most frightening thing you could ever imagine. So some of the footage of, the, of, of this guy trying to face those two guys was maybe some of the most fun parts we did in the entire series. But that series, in fact, was just a fabulous thing to be part of. And we're, we're just sorry it went away. From your perspective, what is the Stanford T20 legacy in your eyes? Well, in reality, it's every league in the world is the, is the legacy. They were the first ones to do it. It was the IPL came out of that, when you think about it. You know, look, if the guy, if the guy was, was uh, guilty of all the things he did, he deserves to be in jail. Now, not necessarily for the, for the amount of time that he's been jailed for, but um, what he did behind the scenes was a lot of people don't know, was bringing resources to resource-starved areas for cricket. All these islands that were part of his circus were, um, were on their bones trying to finance cricket, for, particularly for, ki for kids. And he brought in really much needed money. That legacy, I think, is still there. But it paved the way for the, um, for the way the leagues are played now, in, in my opinion. He was a bit brash. He didn't do everything right. But he certainly brought attention to the game. And he certainly brought uh, much needed financing to, uh, to regional cricket in the Caribbean. And I think a lot of people are still grateful for that. And a lot of people would tell you that they're grateful for it, even though it may not be politically correct to be seen to be associated with that Stanford series for various reasons. From a broadcast production standpoint, what do you think the legacy is of that event? Because there were a lot of things that were done even in that event that were new or different or people in cricket were resistant to or thought that they were, you know, if you think about the XFL, there's a lot of things with the XFL that are commonplace now in sports productions that yeah. nobody really remembers. I mean, the, the number one thing that the XFL did was the spider cam. There was no camera in that position ever in professional yeah. sports anywhere before. And the XFL yeah. did that. And a lot of people don't know that. They, yeah. they just think they take it for granted now, especially kids growing up now wouldn't even know sure. what the hell the yeah. XFL was or, or when it started. But, you know, you have this wrestling promoter. Vince McMahon who wants to start his football league and he's trying to do something new and different. And yeah, there was some crazy and wild stuff like having a hot tub. Oh, they spent some money. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. But you know, there were some valuable things yeah. that happened. People think now, like, you know, when, when Australia had their first couple T20 internationals back in 2005, 2006, and you had all these goofy names on the back of the Jersey, like church and yeah. Hunter and all that. He hate me. He hate me straight out of the XFL. Rod Smart, yeah. the back of the jersey. Yeah. He hate me. You know, having something different on the back of your yeah. jersey that wasn't your actual last name. That's the XFL. Yeah. 
um, that brought that not, you know, that's not something that happened with T20 cricket and the spider cam that's out of the XFL. And and now it's in every NFL broadcast and a cricket broadcast and the bigger cricket broadcast. Absolutely. XFL did that. So are there any innovations that were part of your production doing Stanford that were new or different or things that he tried to push or just in general, you were encouraged to experiment with new things? Well, he wanted us to, um, he wanted us to do, uh, have, you know, cameras on the umpires and all this sort of stuff. And it was just not viable in those days. So, you know, having, having live throws to players on the ground, that was, that was a good thing. I mean, we've done that in, in Caribbean T20. We've done that in Super 50 all through the Caribbean. I mean, we're, we, we may not have been the first to do it, but we we're one of the first to, have, uh, to be able to have the announcers talk to the players. And um, that's something that we'll be doing looking into more for next year for minor and major league cricket next year. But um, that sort of thing, the interaction between the players on the ground, the, the captain or the or one of the key players, I think is a good thing. And I think that's one of the uh, one of the things I remember. In terms of the coverage, I, I, you know, it was fairly straightforward coverage, uh, even though we had, you know, more cameras and more toys than you would expect at, at most Caribbean cricket events with perhaps the World Cup exception because in 2007 was the World Cup down there and it was obviously at a a top level as well but in 2008 which is when we did the second season of Stanford 2006 was the first year then there was nothing in 2007 because of the World Cup in the Caribbean and then we did it again in 2008 now it was I don't think there was anything innovative necessarily except the the entire concept of what he was doing and broadcast wise we were just happy to be able to bring the full forces to bear to bring it to make it as good a show as possible now one of the other things you touched on there kind of briefly was a stigma still uh, if if you were associated with the event or you know people have a stigma if you bring up stanford or you know if you were part of that event we're not 14 years later you're doing just fine yeah did you genuinely feel there was a stigma afterwards you know did you feel you were i never thought there was people found out like oh you uh, peter steep was Working with Alan Sample, you know, stay away. Do you experience anything? No, I never, I never had that. I just know some people uh, in, you know, at maybe at administrative level more so than production level itself, felt like they didn't necessarily want to be known to be part of it. And that's that was, I think, that was a personal thing on their on their side. From me and the guys that were uh, involved in the production, we, you know, I have no problem telling people. I mean, I'm I'm proud of it. We did we did really good broadcast there. We did a lot of them, and um, they were all at very good level. So, as far as that, as far as that concerned, no, went no uh, no stigma per se for us. I think it was more from the administrators who didn't quite know what to make of him at the beginning. If um, any of the listeners or watchers of this show are interested in more of that, they should go to the BBC website and listen to that great series on Stanford. It's like an eight-part series on the on BBC uh, about Stanford days and you'll you'll have your eyes will be rolling when you hear some of the stuff that went on. Well did you watch any of the Sky Sports and I think it might have been put on Netflix as well, three part documentary that was done yeah. the past year. Yeah. Yeah that was uh that was very interesting too. I didn't uh I didn't get approached on that which is good. I didn't I didn't have any input at all in that but I know a lot of the people who did you know, a lot of people complaining about, you know, people getting hosed on money. It always comes down to money, doesn't it? We were more worried about, particularly at the $20 million game when the West Indies team won it. A lot of the players were, well, obviously the Guyana-based players 
were encouraged by the Stanford people to invest the money that they'd received from winning that match back into the Stanford Bank in Guyana. And that was one of the first ones that closed when it all crashed. So some of those guys didn't didn't get out all the money they wanted, unlike unlike my uh, my colleague in cricket, Chris Gale, who took the money and bought cars and things he got out early. He, he spent it all. So he he didn't he didn't worry about putting it in the Stanford Bank. But no, it was it was just a great experience. The, the, he was so serious about the look of it and the presentation of it, that he was really, in some respects, he was ahead of his time. I can remember going in one day where, where you parked, oh, you've been to the, to the venue there, Peter. I, I, yeah, in the days when Stanford was running it, when you brought the car into the parking lot, um, you weren't allowed to, a lot of people used to like to back their cars in so that it was an easy drive out into the spots. No, you couldn't do that. You had to drive in knows first because Stanford didn't want the exhaust fumes of the car going onto the plants and the grass and he'd have guys go I actually saw this is true I actually saw the one of the workers there cutting the grass with scissors to make it even level in the parking lot so that was the level of attention to detail that he made everyone face and the ground was always immaculate and and he had built that the um, the little stadium that the the pavilion there based on the uh, the lady stand of the Sydney Cricket Ground was the original idea. So you know he was he was different, and it's just a shame that it went the way it did. But as we said before, I think there is some legacy there that it brought attention to T Twenty franchise leagues, and uh, look what's happened now. I can't keep up with them all now. Oh, you and me both. <laughs> yeah, so in, in one ear and out the other. Each T20 game in a lot of ways is forgettable. I, I can't yeah. remember anything that happens from one match to another. We did we did the Caribbean T20s before the uh, there was anything like CPL, and I produced every one of those Caribbean T20 matches, and I can only remember a few of them. You know, because you do after you've done a few hundred T T20 matches, they do tend to run into each other. I do remember. Uh, the Queen's Park Oval was one of the most amazing places you could ever be when it's full, when it's when it's a full house there and Trinidad's playing and playing well. We we had the broad the broadcast room is at the northern end of the ground and you know the sometimes I'd be there directing show and the guys couldn't even on the on the PL on the radio where they, you can't hear a thing. It's so loud from the, the from the crowd who's just above you. you. You know we had trouble communicating because the, because of the excitement in the crowd and that was. Caribbean T20 days before CPL even so you know there's nothing like a, a full house at a Caribbean uh, cricket match going back one of the other things you brought up that I want to talk about you start off with golf you said in Australia yeah. you were doing feature film stuff you did had yeah. a credit in Crocodile Dundee and then when you got to the U.S. first off what brought you to the U.S. was it your wife or was there some yes. other thing that no, my wife I, she she dragged me kicking and screaming to Queens and uh, thinking that I'd be here for uh two three four years go back to sydney that was in 1988 i'm still here so uh um, you know i had to find something to do i suppose to stay keep staying here and now just just to be clear in the film days i was a logistics guy i was production management more i didn't do any i wasn't producing or directing films totally as a as a person looking after the you know the, the behind the scenes but coming like i said coming to the us the job that i had uh, down there didn't really exist here because the film business here being so specialized there were companies that did just one thing you know doing it very well for all the films so uh, I kind of drifted into tv and 
friend of mine on the west coast asked me if I wanted to you know come to Pebble Beach and I, who wouldn't want to do that you know everyone who's played golf wants to go play Pebble and I said to the guy do you get to play and he goes no it's the U.S. Open you don't get to play while they're playing the U.S. Open there so I did get to learn some things very quickly about the broadcast business there and you know I've done you know, I don't know how many US Opens and Open Championships and, you know, Shell's Wonderful World of Golf. I don't know if you're ever familiar with that. I've produced uh, 37 of those, the 43 or 36 of the 43 of the modern series. We went all over the world doing, doing golf. It was a great job doing the golf. And that was because I couldn't get into cricket. There was no, no cricket in the US to do. And at that time, that was prior to you know, having opportunities in the Caribbean that I ended up having. So it was golf, golf and tennis and Olympics. It's, it's still not a bad place to go. Pebble Beach. I'd take Pebble Beach yeah. over cricket. Yeah, that's right. No, but I was just, I was always just starved. I couldn't even swim in, in those days. There was no, there was no Willow Cricket. Willow Cricket's only been around about 17 years and we couldn't watch cricket on TV here. So I, I'd have to go home to the cricket. My best friend would pick me up at the airport at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning at, in Sydney, I'd straight from straight from New York and we'd go straight to the Sydney Cricket Ground and uh, straight off the flight. Well, one of the things I, I tell people when I first got into cricket, again, growing up in the US, so you're, you say Will has been around about 17 years yet. So going back 2003, 2004, 2005, that's essentially when Will kind of started to get off the ground. And at the time, it was just an online only service. They didn't have a TV channel. So you had to subscribe online and... I had no concept of it. I had no concept of cricket anywhere in the U.S. growing up in New Jersey. And so when I went to Australia for my semester abroad, and this is in context, so so growing up in New Jersey, I didn't know it existed. But finding out after I came back from Australia, I realized, like you're talking about, there's cricket all over New York, Corona Park, there's Casino Boulevard, and yeah. underneath the uh, the Triborough Bridge in um, Randall's Island, you know, there's cricket at Randall's yeah. Island. It's, there's cricket all over New York City and Staten Island and everywhere else. And in New Jersey, there's cricket all over New Jersey, right 10 minutes away from where I went to high school. There's there's cricket grounds. I went to high school in West Orange at Seton Hall Prep. And in Newark at Columbus Park and other parks around Newark and in Weequick and other parts around um, Montclair, Newark, West Orange, Bloomfield, that area, there's cricket grounds all over the place that were like five minutes away. And I had no idea that they were there growing up and I had no idea that people were playing, but they were there. And in Edison and Princeton and all these areas, there's cricket grounds, right? Yeah, it's big in New Jersey, yeah. I had no concept of cricket in America, especially cricket right under my nose. And so when I I was on the plane coming back from Australia on my 14 hour flight on Qantas from uh, Sydney to Los Angeles, I'd just gone through this experience immersed in the 2005 ashes and was so sucked in and that's what got me hooked into cricket and I, i'd gone to the new year's test against south africa that year in 2006 and i went to all five days and i was i just couldn't get enough and i thought i have to take advantage of this because when i get back to the u.s for all i know i might never see cricket ever again and so i want to burn this in my mind and so when i was on the Qantas flight back 14 hour flight they had this two hour ashes highlights package retrospective that was produced by sbs and it had Simon Hill was the host with Dean Jones yep. and Greg Matthews. And I watched that thing seven times in a row on a loop on the 14-hour flight. Yeah, because you could. Because I could. <laughs> a, it was an option. I, didn't, I wasn't interested in anything else in the in-flight uh, <laughs> entertainment system options. But B, I thought to myself, I have to burn this in my memory. I have to just yeah. commit it to memory, watch it as many times as I can. Because when I get off this plane, for all I know, I'll never see cricket again. 
And I don't want to forget this because this was so special. And then yeah. afterwards, I come to discover, wow, there's all this stuff that's happening in cricket. But yeah, for the first 17 years that you're in the U.S., from 88 to 2005, really, in, in that time frame, I mean, to what extent up until, yeah, up until you got involved in the pro cricket, the production, the television broadcast production yeah. pro cricket, cricket in 2004, I mean, from 88 to 2004, you talked about before you played a little bit of cricket here and there, but what was your concept of cricket in America and how did you first then get involved and get opportunities to do cricket from a sports production after having gotten started in golf and tennis and Olympics? Well, you know, that I had no, the first question you asked there, that I had no concept that like you, that there was really any cricket played at all in this country. I, I just, it just was a blank. And until like it was mid nineties or it could have been the early nineties, I actually saw, I saw an ad come up. I must've been through the Australia society where, you know, the expat Australians would hang out Friday nights and do a networking um, meeting on a Friday night at the Australian consulate in on 42nd street and fifth Avenue at the time. And um, through there, we were told that Australia was going to play Pakistan at Randall's Island. We went, what? Australian cricket team? Yeah, they're both on their way back from, from a tour or some something that was going on. I can't remember the exact year. I'd have to go look it up. So we traipsed out on the weekend to Randall's Island and we sat there on the side of the hill. Now, of course, now it's where the where that track and field facility is there now. But uh, Yeah, Icon. It's called Icon Park after Carl Icon, yeah, I think. It was Icon, yeah, the Icon Park. Now, there was we watched cricket there. The Australia was a full team. So we, we saw Javed Nandard and Imran Khan playing we saw go Alan Border and and Mark Taylor and all these guys playing in New York City it was so incongruous to me at the time that I was just I was astonished that and there was a really good crowd there so I thought well if I can see Australia and Pakistan play in New York City pretty much anything can happen so um, having worked in all the other sports as you mentioned I kind of made a bit of a pest of myself to some people um, that were doing cricket in the Caribbean and I kind of got in the sideways door down there and I ended up being hired. I was put on a contract by uh, Cricket West Indies to produce all their regional cricket and some of the international that was outside, which was outside the, the remit of their existing uh, international contract at the time with IMG. But um, I just, and I kind of burrowed my way in there and, and I kind of stayed there ever since. And now that there are opportunities in the US, there'll be even more cricket here. At the time, I had done some cricket in Australia and I did a little bit in, in the UK as well. Uh, and I did follow the cricket, obviously, as much as I could being based in New York and without the resources of Crick Infos and all the websites that are available now. But um, part of going back home every year was going to the cricket. Always timed it perfectly to first test into uh, Brisbane. You know, first test of a series for the home for the home summer. I just timed it that I had to go there. Just I tell my wife that I need to go there for some business reasons. It always happened if she figured it out. I always happened to be around about the time the first test match started in Brisbane. So, uh, but now of course, cricket being the way it is, TV wise, you can turn on anything. And I remember you mentioning some time ago on one of your broadcasts about the fact that you can watch literally anything in the US cricket wise more so than you can in other countries. Well, definitely in Australia. I mean, the cricket access yeah. in the USA is 10 times yeah. greater than it is in Australia. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you can't watch 
if you're in Australia, you can't watch, you know, India play South Africa unless you're going to subscribe online somewhere now. I guess you can. But in the US, you can just, as you've pointed out, you can just turn it on and put the DVR on and you can watch any match you want. It's great. I just found it. Australia versus Pakistan. They called it on, on Cricket Archive. It's called the North America Cup. And if you go on so, Cricket Archive, there's lots of scorecards like this. Games played either in Mount Vernon which is just outside the Bronx where people aren't up to their New York geography or no. um, Downing Stadium, yeah. which is the traditional yeah. name of, of Icon Stadium yeah. on Randall's Island. But this match, well, May 12th, 1990, Australia versus Pakistan. Uh, fantastic. David Boone is listed as the captain. Yeah. You've got top to bottom, Darren Lehman, Dean Jones, Jamie Siddons, Steve Waugh, David Boone, Ian Healy, Peter yeah. Taylor. Merv Hughes, yeah. Merv Hughes, Chris Matthews, not Dean Matthews, Chris Matthews from Western okay. Australia. Yeah. Carl Rackman and yeah. Terry Alderman. That was the 11 for Australia. Not bad, huh? And they made 152. It was a 40 over match that you listed as all out for 152 yeah. and 29 overs. Uh, Dean Jones top score with 79. And then for Pakistan, Australia won, won by five runs. They bowled out Pakistan in 29.1 overs. Pakistan 11, Zakir Khan, Saeed Anwar, Ramiz Raja, yeah. Salim Malik, captained yeah. by Imran Khan. Yeah. Javed Dad, Wasim Akram, Salim Yusuf, Mushtaq Ahmed, Wakar Yunus, and Akib Javed. That's not a bad lineup, is it? So like... in an era, again, 1990, yeah. when you don't have an option to watch cricket on TV, yeah. you want to see cricket from America, you have to go physically in person or get a VHS yeah. tape mailed to you and see if it gets through customs. <laughs> yeah. from Australia. Otherwise, you have no option to go to cricket. So yeah. this was it. If you don't go, yeah. you can't see any cricket. Absolutely astonishing. And uh, and we only found out about it because of the uh, tight-knit Australian community. It wasn't advertised anywhere outside that. We, you know, we just we just found out that obviously the uh, the consul general was office was helping with um, you know with all the bureaucratic side of it. So that's how we found out about it. Now this this is another thing I love about this. This is at the bottom of the notes for the match on Cricket Archive. Now again, Australia one fifty two all out. Dean Jones, 79, David Boone, 31. Nobody else got into double digits. Uh -huh. And then Ramiz Raja, 53 for Pakistan. Imran Khan, 14. Salim Yusuf, 51. Nobody else in double digits. No, it's at the bottom. This is hilarious. And it says Walker Yunus took a hat trick. Yeah. He got, he got, uh, I knew someone did. I just couldn't remember who did. I wasn't going to try and uh, date myself. Yeah. Walker Yunus got Dean Jones, uh, Chris Matthews, and Carl Rackman. That was his hat trick. Okay. Now, uh, so it was right at the end of the innings. Here we go. But right below it, this is this sums up cricket in America oh, historically in, in these kind of situations. The match was originally scheduled as a 40 overs game, but did not get underway until 1.30 p.m. after the organizers found that the clay base of the intended pitch over which matting was supposed to be tacked on top of it, mm -hmm. the jute matting wicket, clay base was wet after rain seeped under the flimsy covers. A makeshift pitch was then devised, but proved to be very poor. Yes, that's right. That is that tells you a lot, doesn't it? And I don't know whether that that those lines that you just read, Peter, would be that much different these days to some of the venues that we uh, see cricket at in the US, unfortunately. But uh, hopefully, um, that will change with the uh, infusion of uh, interest and and resources into major league cricket. Of all the things that you've gotten to do 
outside of cricket you mentioned the golf but olympics so when you're working olympics what's what's the favorite thing you've done in terms of production wise on a sport at the olympics and what's your favorite place that you've gotten a chance to go to for the olympics or are you doing all these things remotely are you actually getting to go to the countries or is it remote work well the last two i did remotely this year earlier this year the beijing winter olympics i did in stanford connecticut and and the postponed 20 Tokyo Summer Games, which was done last year, uh, 2020 game, which was played last year, uh, which were, were held last year because of COVID. Uh, I did both those from Stanford, but all the others I've done at, at the venues. Uh, Atlanta Games was my first. But um, you say, what's the best thing? Uh, we have a joke at NBC. Uh, the best thing you do about the is the, the, the best thing about Olympics production is the flight home. Um, because you know the 18-hour days do kind of get to you and I'm a little bit old for that now but uh, fabulous um, experience and when you get it past to work on your first Olympics and you know you're just you're so excited you can't believe it but um, having done so many of them um, I know that it's a, a grueling job you're relied upon by a lot of people and there's a certain level of of production expertise is expected of everybody at whatever job they're doing. And it's a massive undertaking. I mean, the Athens Olympics, I think was one of the most interesting ones for me because the size of NBC's footprint at the International Broadcast Center was just astonishing. They had, um, I think it was the high then, we had 5,600 people there in Athens. I think that was the high, the high watermark for production. And just NBC just, alone. Just NBC alone, yeah. Just ridiculous. Now, this year, um, in comparison, well, Tokyo last year um, for the Summer Games, I think we had 1,700 in Stanford and then about another 12 or 1,300 uh, on site. So the, you know, the advanced technology these days means you don't need as many people on the ground. Uh, you can do a lot more remotely, and you'll see that going on. You know, it'll be even... There is a core group that needs to be there, of course, but uh, there is more and more remote production. And uh, but it didn't feel at Stanford facility. It didn't feel like there was that extra. There was so many people. It just felt like normal time up there. But problem this year in the Winter Olympics was that we had the Super Bowl in the middle of the Olymp middle weekend of the Olympics was the Super Bowl. So we had uh, there was quite a strain on the resources at uh, Stanford based on uh, doing an Olympics and a Super Bowl at the same time. But um, that's all part of the fun and. Uh, the check is still the same at the end of the day, right? Now you say that. I wanted to yeah. ask about this because you touched on this at the start of your interview and you said that your favorite part, the running joke is the favorite part is the flight home. I've worked enough events, whether from a writing standpoint or photography standpoint or on the broadcast itself. I've gotten to the stage. I don't want to say I'm, I'm cynical about this, but when some people ask me, what's my favorite game I've ever covered in cricket? I always tell them when Oman was bowled out for 24 by Scotland in February 2018 because... It was supposed to be a 50-hour match, and we were in and out of there in 90 minutes, and I had six hours that I wasn't expecting to have at the start of the day that yeah. I had time to do, and I enjoy that so much. And I still got a full paycheck for covering the match, whether it went yeah. an hour and a half or eight there you hours. Go. Yeah. And so on the flip side of that, when I'm, when I'm doing ball-by-ball -ball commentary for Creek Info in particular, for example, right? if I'm doing the online text and I'm assigned to do an IPL or a CPL match, the games i hate the most any game that goes to a super over yeah of course, because of course. you're yeah. you're counting on the game to end three and a half four hours if it's stretching four hours it's kind of a nuisance but then yeah. all the fans at home 
are watching, and I'm sure the CEO and business executives, ratings bonanza, going to a Super Bowl. Oh, we love this yeah, Super Bowl. No oh, this is the height yeah. of drama. This is amazing. What a, you know, we're dying for a Super Bowl. And there were some matches this year in the IPL, or got towards the end of the season, people were sending in comments into the, the, the comment section that we can see internally on the cricket and football ball. And they were saying, oh, please let this be the first Super Over match of the season. <laughs> and I'm saying, no, not while no, we're, let somebody yeah. else have the Super Over match. I don't want to be working a Super Over match because it's going to delay my day and delay my dinner by another 45 minutes. And yeah. please, yeah. that's the last thing I want. We have a we have a saying in the truck when we're, uh, when we're doing cricket. No one is allowed to say the word in the truck. If they are, they get kicked out of the truck. No one is allowed to say that word that starts with an S if you're getting close down to the wire. So, uh, uh, you know, no one wants to do it because, you know, it does cut into your drinking time. So, but, so yeah, <laughs> from, from a, a time standpoint, it works. And you don't get paid extra. At least I've never gotten paid extra for yeah. a Super Bowl game. The paycheck's still the same. So, yeah. so from that standpoint, yeah. yes, it's it's a nuisance yeah. having to work that extra time. But, but how but do they're you exciting. Balance- how do you balance the nuisance of having your your post work downtime and relaxation time interrupted by a super over or anything else in cricket? You know that goes. If you think back to the you know world the World Cup final, you know going into the super over, you know you've already been there for eight hours. You have got this last ball drama, and I'm thinking to myself, I was in Canada at the time working the uh, under nineteen World Cup qualifier for the Americas. It was USA Canada match that day. I was working at the same time, and I was on the broadcast for that. But I'm thinking to myself. Oh, four bastards working that New Zealand England final. I'm I'm not I'm not jealous of them. <laughs> They've yeah. got to stick around there for another hour. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, we we um, they are fun. I mean, it, you just want to make sure if, if you're producing a super over, you just want to make sure you don't miss anything because you know the time time not to make a mistake is the time when you miss the minute with the winning run but i guess that could be also said about at any given stage during the match but um super overs you just you know as you say at the end of the day there you'd rather particularly done a, if you've done a double header or if you've done a, a 50 over match and there's there's been an you know, hour and a half rain delay and then you've got to keep going and then keep going and keep going but it's all part of the fun and i'd rather be doing that than uh, digging roads around queens <laughs> but when you are in that situation, uh, when when you're being stretched a little bit more than, yeah. than you anticipated, what is the most enjoyable part, and and what do you get the most satisfaction out of when you're deeply immersed in a broadcast and you've got all sorts of things happening? You you're in charge of however many camera angles and camera operators and communicating with yeah. the the commentary crew and switchers and all these kind of things that go into a very intense yeah. moment. I mean, what do you get the most enjoyment and satisfaction out of when that situation arises on a cricket broadcast or any sports broadcast that leads to that moment? Well, when you're doing that in that situation, just knowing that you've presented the images in the way that you'd like to watch them yourself at home, that's very gratifying. That you know, I, When I'm watching cricket particularly, I know what I want to see and you want to tell the story. As I say, it's a, you know, a, the definition of a of a the perfect film is a, a good story well told but that can also be the case in a in a in a good sporting event particularly cricket if you can tell that story at the end the nbc kind of bangs it into your head read the olympics tell the story tell the story but um it, it seems trite and you know repetitive but it's true if you tell that story of not just the super over but of you know a thrilling draw in a you know in a test match or a, a last over win in a white ball match 
as long as you present that looking what you've, you've, you've just made the right decisions in which replays to show, you've made the right decisions on which reactions to go to, and you made the right decisions on who the commentary team are at the time to handle a situation like that. So it's all very gratifying because, you know, you, you know, as I said, it's, I always plan to have people around me that are much better than me and that makes me look better and makes me feel more comfortable when I walk into the compound. So I'm always grateful to have those people around. They know what they're doing and everything just falls into place. It's great. Um, other cricket directors will tell you the same thing, you know, just stay in the moment and make sure that it, each ball is, is presented to the viewers the way you'd like to watch it at home. The Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is presented by Dream Cricket. Dream Cricket Store can help you fill up all of your cricket kit requirements. Anything you need. Bats, helmets, gloves, pads, jerseys, and more. Go to dreamcricketstore.com now and get 15% off your first order. Dream Cricket Store also offers free shipping on all orders over $200. Again, go to www.dreamcricketstore.com to take advantage of that great offer today. This episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now the first ODI-accredited venue in the Lone Star State, located at 5515 McKeever Road, County Road 100 in Pearland. Five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288, a half hour south of downtown Houston, Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms, plus shower facilities after a day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. Musa also has two nursery grounds on the north side of the stadium boundary available for use. For more information, visit www.musastadium.com. That's M-O-O-S-A stadium.com. Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. And now back to the episode. The most physical representation on a cricket broadcast or any sports broadcast is obviously the play-by-play and the color commentator. But there's so many people behind the scenes that... Again, you've referenced, you've touched on, you've been a part of. When b- people are kind of talking about a sports broadcast and who their mentors are, commentators always come up. But for from a production standpoint, a director standpoint, who are the mentors that you had who you feel helped shape you and your style to get to where you are today? Well, there's a guy who doesn't do, he's never done cricket. Uh, he's a New Jersey guy, um, Jim Walton, who probably taught me more about TV than anything, than, than anybody. And you know, he's just, you know, he was just a born sports freak and it and just understands tv we do we've done golf for decades together and we do the grenada invitational uh, track and field event we do a bunch and we've done tennis. we produced uh, bermuda open tennis for 10 years he he's just a a great source of knowledge for tv he taught me a lot but in terms of directing there's a guy uh, in australia who had a very very different view of things he was quite raw in his descriptions of things on the air uh, and he would come to come to work in shorts and flip-flops and he didn't care about the uh the suits he didn't care and he just got the job done and his style the way he he directed the uh the Stanford series and I was the producer but he was the director on that show and he just said to me before the series started that first year, he said, just stay out of my way and I'll, I'll do most of the work. And okay, this is, this is fine. So I could, in the producer role, there are very you know, different things you do uh, than a director role. And you know, I just let him go and he was, uh, you know, well, 
wasn't me letting him go. He just went and did his thing, and I was just in awe of the way he brought he brought that to the world. And um, so there are a few people that that you get impressed with early on, or some people that may impress you the wrong way, and you want to do it differently. But those two guys, you know, had the most influence on me in the way I produce things. And you know, there's another guy. There's there's a few directors. Um, the cricket directing world is a fairly small club in the world when you think about it, and at the end of the day, I guess you're all doing the same thing and each person thinks that they might be bringing something a little bit different, but you're not really. You're just, you know, you're, you're telling a story through other people's cameras. And, um, you know, I can't say that that I do it any better or hopefully not worse than, than anybody else, but there are certain things that I, that I bring to it from a US broadcasting perspective that's different. Because a lot of the the cricket tr traditionally the cricket directors and producers are you know from the UK or Australia or India that get the most work, and um, there's a certain way of doing things from those backgrounds that are very different than learning. So I learned the broadcast business in the US before I was doing bigger cricket matches. So I brought a US perspective to the way a truck or a, or an outside broadcast works. Um, so that's a little bit different and I don't know whether that's better, but I did get some odd views on things uh, when I first started doing cricket regularly in the Caribbean because they were used to having a production done in the style of, uh, of, of Brits coming out there all the time and doing it their way. Um, but at the end of the day, you're just showing, you're showing a, a sporting event on TV. It's, it's, it's not rocket science. I'm just grateful to be asked. Let me ask you this. There's a school or a philosophy point of view where you learn a lot more from your mistakes than you do from the things you do, right? I've got a photographic memory for all the photos I've screwed up that would have been great photos that nobody will ever see. That's and, right. And it teaches me, or, you know, being in the wrong position where, you know, if yeah. I had a different angle or I was at a terrible angle and it taught me a lesson, like if I want an end of uh, shot sequence, like I've got to be standing here and this where I thought yeah, was you know where to be. Yeah. It's completely yeah. useless. And you learn those things or I learn them through through mistakes, making errors to never get yeah. up again and get myself in better positions going forward, be in the right spot. So for you, what would you say is a great mistake that you made early on, whether it was in one of the other roles you had or as a director on a broadcast that taught you early on, this was a hard lesson and never to do it again. And it's helped you yeah. become uh, a much better broadcaster and, and be in the business yeah. as long as you have now. Well, um, a couple of things. Doing homework on what you're going to be doing, whether whether it's a highlights producer or a director or whatever, does make a difference. And it might sound trite. I mean, you know, oh, yeah, Lee is the old dinosaur telling the young guys how to do their job. But really, it really helped serve me. Do your homework before the match about who's playing, you know, what the situation of the uh, series of it is. What that, those sort of things seem very simple, but they're really important. And one, and the other thing is, I've been caught a couple of times early on making the mistake of directors watching TV. I remember in a Caribbean T20 match, it was really, really interesting close match. A guy hits a four, you know, ready one, one, ready two, two, ready five. And five is the mid-wicket camera. And, the, you know, the two camera twos followed the ball all the way to the boundary, runs over to the boundary. Normally, then I would have to, you know, depending on which side of the field it was, have five follow the ball back. And I'm, I'm standing there watching it and the ball stopped, you know, over the rope. 
and I'm watching, and I'm thinking to myself, geez, we've been on this shot for a while. I wonder what, oh, geez. I made the mistake of watching the cricket match instead of making a TV show. So my mistake was the ball was sitting up there for six or seven or eight seconds or 10 seconds when you should have been seeing the next sequence. So I, that happened a couple of times. So you realize that you can't be watching TV while you're directing. It sounds weird, but you can't. You've got to make sure that you're concentrating on every ball as much as you can. 50 over matches are really quite difficult because they generally run longer than test match day. And they're obviously longer than a 20 over match day unless you're doing two, two 20 over matches, but don't get caught watching TV is, is the mistakes that, uh, that I'll tell people who are coming into the, into the game. So from that standpoint, it's almost like you're talking about it like a chessboard. You've got to be a few steps ahead of what yeah. the viewer is actually watching. So yeah. how many steps ahead do you feel you are in terms of giving direction to camera switches or camera angles or, or anything else in, in terms of being ahead? And does it lead you at any point in time or early on when you were first doing it, did you get discombobulated in a sense where your yeah. your attention is elsewhere trying to be two or three or four steps ahead that you, you're you trying to juggle with one yeah. eye on this, one eye on that, and then all of a sudden it leads to mayhem? Yeah, that's very true. You got to be, you have to be a couple of steps ahead, but you don't want to get too far ahead because you might start getting too far ahead where what you think is going to happen then doesn't happen. And then you do get upside down with the, with the with the shots that you're doing and the time that you might have to put a replay in or not put a replay in. And that's why you have good people around you. The, the person who's actually doing the, hitting the buttons, the vision mixer, as they call them in Australia and England and in the US business, they call the technical director, really the most important part of the entire show, in my opinion. And if you have a good one, then they'll cover up the mistakes you make I have the, one of the one of the one of the best in the business is a lady called Evie Burnett, who is an Australian lady who does all sorts of coverage. But she's very good at cricket, and she's one of the first chosen by directors around the world. And Evie and I have done many many shows together, and I feel confident having her next to me because I know if I if I call for camera four, and it's the wrong camera, she won't take it. She'll she'll take the right one. So you know she'll cover a mistake and. A lot of the technical directors won't do that. They'll just, whatever the director calls, what's it if it's wrong? You'll take the wrong shot and just not say anything. You don't want those people in the truck because you want people around you who are willing to help you. So you have people who, who understand the game and understand the broadcast business that can help you get around it because it doesn't matter how many times you've done it, you're going you're gonna to muck something up. You know, you, you just can't help it because there's so much going on, particularly when you have a lot of cameras. I mean, you know, you were part of that broadcast in Morrisville and you probably heard a few things coming from the truck that, that you don't always hear in everyday uh, occurrence. But, you know, in, at the end of the day, it's, um, it's another broadcast, another sporting event, and you just want to make it as smooth as possible. You're never going to have a show where there's no mistakes, but you try and cut down on them. The network people in the US tend to take it a little bit more seriously about, you know, screaming at you if there's a mistake, but... You know, at the end of the day, I always say it's uh, it's only TV and nobody got hurt, right? I was going to say, yeah, yeah. The, the other sports I worked on going back to college, whether it's you or anybody else, I'm taken aback by how less I get yelled at. I'm expecting to get yelled at and everybody's polite on the cricket broadcast. And I'm thinking yeah. you guys need to be 
a bit more in my face to keep me in. Well, in I, I, don't think, I don't know if that works. And, you know, you might just get up and walk away. I yelled at you, Peter. But, I, <laughs> but the thing is, part of it is, too, that if you say something that I didn't really want you to say, if I start telling you now during the broadcast, not to say this, not to say that, I'm distracted from doing something else. So, you know, and I've, I've always been of the opinion that I want people who are listening to me at any given time during the show on the crew, I want them to be on my side rather than not on my side. I'd, I'd rather not be sabotaged by someone downstream who's, who I've yelled at. My favorite experience, I think, Peter, has to be, forget if it was the semifinals or if, if it was a week before, but there was a bit of gray area from my perspective in terms of when we were going to a genuine ad break at the end of an over versus when we yeah. were just kind of doing the visuals oh, with the drone over the ground or whatever. And, and we could continue a conversation as opposed to cutting yeah. off with the overscore to cut, cut to a commercial break. And I thought we were going to stick and just continue the, the dialogue after the end of the over after just taking a brief pause, whatever. And no, it was, it was a situation where we were going to a, a Toyota ad break. And so there was a pause and uh, by Ama. I, was, I was working with Ama Patel. There was a pause, and I thought, I'm looking, and it, I thought we were sticking with the coverage on the ground. We weren't cutting into an ad break. So I'm, I'm continuing kind of the conversation that was the theme in the middle of the over. And all of a sudden, in my ear, I hear you shout out, Lay out, Peter. Lay out, lay out, lay out. God damn it. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, that might have been my fault in not giving you proper information. I'll, I'll accept the blame for that. <laughs> but I just thought, like, the whole time, Peter's been pretty just straightforward with his instructions. All of a sudden, I'm just hearing Peter shout at the top of his lungs, lay out, lay out, goddamn. <laughs> well, the thing is, Toyota is the sponsor of the event, so we have to make sure they get their full value of their commercial. <laughs> and, and the difference was there that uh, for the minor league, we were running those commercials ourselves from the truck. Yeah. Whereas generally speaking, you're throwing to a broadcaster who is in a remote studio somewhere. And for Willow TV, we found out last year that we would have a person talking to them, let, letting them know when we're not on and when we're, when we're on. And it didn't seem to make any difference to the Indians in Bangalore who were taking our show. So yeah. we were thinking, oh, this is going to be a dog's breakfast when we look it back. And when we looked back at the replays from Willow, it was absolutely perfect so it's sometimes a gray area you just don't want to be talking when you shouldn't and you should be talking when you should so it's again I don't, it doesn't really worry me too much and for people who don't know the technical term broadcasting layout means yeah. shut up you're supposed to yeah. shut the f up <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now you said before and, and this has kind of been a theme in a lot of the stuff you brought up You've taken a lot of stuff from the U.S. broadcast. You were trained kind of in the U.S. school of broadcast sports production, not the Australian school or not the British school or European school or whatever. What do you think is the number one thing that you've learned stylistically from the kind of upbringing or the training in the U.S. style of sports broadcast production that you think has enhanced cricket broadcast that you might not see in a traditional cricket broadcast that's done in a style of the British school or the Australian school or any other kind of style of sports production? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I don't know whether there, I could actually point to anything specifically. It's a combination of perhaps the order you do things 
leading into a broadcast, part of the uh, the pregame show, perhaps um, there is a, a little bit of a different approach in the US during the show itself. I'm not sure that I could point to something specific. I know from doing cricket for a long time that there are certain protocols that are just set in stone the world over. And that wouldn't matter where, where you first learned your broadcasting. You just have to follow those protocols with the toss and the, the captain's interviews and all the things that lead into the first ball of the match. But the US tends to dress up the opening of of shows a little bit differently or a little bit more than, than say the UK or, or Australia or, or India, or with the exception of IPL, of course, which is a whole different animal. But um, I, you know, it's, I guess it's a long-winded way of, of evading the question because I don't really, I can't really say that there's that much difference between them. There's just difference in protocols that you, the way you lead into the sequence of shots that you're going to be showing and, and how you start telling the story at the beginning of the match. What have you not done in your broadcasting production career that you would like to do if you haven't gotten an opportunity to do so? Uh, well, I'd like to do a test match at Lords. I've done, no, you said you've done other stuff at Lords, but not a test yeah, match. I've done, I've done T20s at Lords, but not a test match. Or I'd like to do a test match at Melbourne Cricket Ground. That's, that would be great. But um, well, you're you're a New I, South Welshman. Why the MCG? Well, I mean, uh, Sydney Cricket Ground's the best cricket ground in the world because I mean, we all we all know that. But uh, I, I'd like to do it there too. But the, I'd like it to be in Melbourne because of the crowd. There are the crowd reactions. But yeah, Sydney Sydney Cricket Ground is 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 home for me. Why are the crowd reactions so integral to a sports broadcast? In, in the sense that, again, you know, the pictures you talked about and a lot of other people in sports pictures tell the story. It's hard to sell people on why sport is exciting if you're broadcasting from an empty cricket ground, whether that was during COVID or pre-COVID. Yeah. This doesn't look exciting. If you're trying to encourage people or, or even just from a basic broadcast media rights standpoint, why would somebody pay for media rights if the picture that's being shown is an empty cricket ground? And at the most yeah. level, why are media rights valued? Why, why would a, a TV company pay for media rights? Because the demand has exceeded the supply. You've, you've got more people interested in watching an event that can't buy a ticket, can't get no. into the venue. So you need to show it on TV to satisfy the demand at, at a most basic elemental level. That's why media rights value. So if you're showing a game where there's nobody there, it's kind of hard to get people excited. Whereas if it's in, in a venue where, yeah, there's sold out or there's boisterous fans or whatever, it makes for a hell of a lot better picture storytelling. Why, from your perspective, are fans and doing crowd shots and all the things, the ancillary things that happen outside of the boundary rope or the, the sidelines or, you know, the field of play, what to you makes that such an essential part of any sports production? Well, the energy level itself, I mean, people may not realize that the, the interactions of the crowd have a huge bearing on, on the actions of the players. They, it's, it may not seem that way, but all the players will tell you who have played at the top level, they act and play differently when there is crowd interacting with them. Now, it's not always positive. I can tell you that from, you know, my friends in the Caribbean when they first toured Australia and England, they were copying stuff from the crowd that they would rather not hear. Now, 
that's the negative side of it, and that can Im- that can impact the way they play and the way they react, and that makes better television, in my opinion, rightly or wrongly. But if it's positive interaction, and if it's an excitement level, then the players are affected by that. And like you rightly point out, if there's no one in the crowd, and they're playing to an empty grounds because of COVID or or whatever, then that's not there and it's quiet. They're still playing. They're still going through the motions. The broadcasters, I don't think at the end of the day, mind as much as us who are actually doing the production because there's more people watching if there aren't, in theory, if they're not at the ground. I guess everyone has to watch it on TV because they know they can't go because of COVID. Then the advertising revenue that they can put in, that they can get, is there because they've paid for the rights. But that could be, that's the case when there's a crowd there or not a crowd. But the players themselves will tell you that their reactions to situations during the match are definitely impacted by what the crowd's doing at the time. And you know, you, you learn, you kind of notice that more when you're doing the broadcasting side of it rather than, rather than just watching it on TV. If you're at the ground at one of those very, very raucous games, you can, you can feel an energy, energy for it. And you, can, you know that there are players interacting with the crowd, particularly in the outfield. But from a broadcaster's point of view, anytime there's energy between the players on field and the crowd, positive or negative, makes a better story to tell. And it sounds trite and it sounds you know, repetitive, but it is, it is true. You can get a little bit more out of the, out of the TV broadcast if there, is, if there is energy between the players and the crowd. What would you say in terms of the percentages if there is such a thing that you kind of contemplate or, or factor into your style of broadcasting in terms of percentage of shots or the frequency of shots where you cut to a crowd shot, whether it's after a wicket or a four or whatever, that you feel adds to the broadcast? Well, as the match is drawing to a close, there's more excitement. If there's a, if there are sixes and fours being hit that gives the team batting team a chance to win, then um, crowd shots then become more important. And I guess equally saying, if the wickets start to fall and the fielding team has a better chance of winning, particularly if it's if it's at the home ground, um, the crowd shots are very important. My uh, business partner Kevin, who's been doing cricket longer than I have, he has one rule. He says, I hate crowd shots. And I go, why? Because he was the guy that had to shoot them when he was doing camera for all those years. And, you know, he's done every, every test match ground in the world. And he's done Formula One. He's done, he's, he's done everything. And um, he always didn't like the, the uh, crowd shots. But I kind of like crowd shots because it, uh, it adds to the, I think it does add to the show. What else would you want people to know about the broadcasting industry from your perspective that they should know that would make them better appreciate the behind the scenes aspects of a production that gets projected on the front facing end. People have probably heard this from, you know, many people. I don't know if I have anything extra to add. It's, it's, it's just that it's, it's good to be anonymous is one of the things that I like going back to first moving to the U S but in the broadcast, I don't want to be known as someone, Oh, he's the guy that did the, the show. It's just, you're part of a group of people who bring this to the TV screen and the people watching it, as long as they're happy, as long as they're willing to tune in next time, that's all. That's all you can hope for. I, I don't think. I don't think I'm known for a particular style, or I'm known for, for for doing really anything. I mean, the guys that I work in the business with know what I do, but I've always done other jobs as well. I haven't always been directing or producing. I don't think people at home watching 
actually care that much, Peter, to, to be honest, that you know, as long as as long as they can open up a can of beer and watch the cricket, they don't care who's doing it or how they're doing it. As long as they as long as you miss, you get every catch and as long as you show them a few good replays, I think they're happy. All right, favorite eleven time with Peter Steep. Eleven questions, cricket and non-cricket. Are you ready? Go ahead. Your favorite single game event broadcast you've ever worked on in your career? Usain Bolt winning the 100 meters at the London Games in 2012. Where were you when that was happening? I was in the broadcast center at, uh, in London, only about in Stratford, where we're, and you know, the arena was right next to us, so it was fairly close. That was hard to beat. Or perhaps... Oh, I didn't work on the Beijing game because I was doing cricket in the Caribbean at the time. No, so that yeah, I would say Usain Bolt winning the hundred. He's in uh, in London. What is it like being in the broadcast center for an event or a moment like that, just in the build up, and then when the event itself occurs? Because it's a very you know it's a very monumental event, but it only lasts for nine point five seconds. So blink yeah. and you missed it. So how does that compare to no. being in the venue? Well, the excitement level in the in a control room or in a in a broadcast area in general, it can be just as much just as exciting as it is in well, not just as exciting, but it's a very exciting thing. You know, it, everybody's glued to it. You want to do the TV part of it, but it's um, that's an exciting time to watch something like that. And then I went out uh, a couple of days later and watched him in the two hundred from the venue, and that was great too because we had you know I had access with the the Olympic Pass, I had access to, uh, to some nice areas. And that was great too, but I didn't see it from a TV perspective. I was watching it there as, you know, the guy running past me. So it was hard to compare, but I mean, some of those big Olympic events are, uh, are extraordinary. Your favorite broadcast play-by-play caller, cricket or non-cricket, who do you enjoy watching lead a broadcast? My favorite would be the late Tony Cozier. He was... Uh, the best I've heard, I think, in doing cricket coverage. He said he was the master of the uh, the non-statement, as he used to say. He said sometimes you can tell more of the story by not saying anything than you can by saying it. And I think he got that from Richie Benno. But uh, Tony Cozier, for sure, he was my favourite. And then that's for TV. For radio, I can go back and back into the dark ages before electricity, Peter. I can, I can tell you uh, that the sound of summer in Australia was... Oh, don't hold back. Was, who, who is it? L- Lindsay Hassett, who was the great player from the 40s in Australian team. On, you know, Lindsay Hassett doing these uh, colour commentary on the ABC radio. You'd be listening at the beach. That was, that's, that was another thing that sticks in my head too. But Tony Cozier for TV. The radio, now you bring that up. I learned cricket. My, my education in cricket was like sped up a hundredfold by listening to Jim Maxwell yeah. on, on the radio, I, I learned quickly to bring a, a radio with me because everybody else at the cricket ground but me had a radio. So I thought, I got to fit in. Yeah. I got to get one. And it, not knowing the fielding positions and not knowing the nuances, hearing him call the play-by-play as the ball was running in and as the ball comes off the bat and hearing him describe yeah. the fielding positions. It's different, isn't it? Yeah. That was what taught me so much about cricket, the descriptive element on radio that you don't just, you don't get on TV necessarily at all yeah. times. My dad used to turn off when the, the cricket was on at home, he'd turn off the TV coverage and just have the radio sitting on the top of the TV. 
Your favorite thing to do. You've had plenty of these. Your favorite thing to do to pass the time on a 14-hour long-haul flight. Well, apart from sleeping. Uh, be, that, can be, that can be a top of the list. There's nothing wrong yeah, with that. No, I like listening to um, audiobooks. It passes the time for me really quickly. And then if I do fall asleep, I can wake up and I can just rewind and start again. Your favorite cricket ground. Oh, okay. Sydney cricket ground, for sure. Why? Not just because it's it's your your home. Well, it was the first test match that I ever went to. And, you know, it just has the feeling. I mean, I did a piece for the uh, 2000 Olympics. Uh, a friend of mine and I did some um, behind the scenes to like experience Australia type pieces for NBC. And one of them was a little thing on uh, Australian sports. And we did it at the Sydney Cricket Crown. And that was, you know, that's 20 years ago. But um, it reminded me a lot of my youth listening to the radio on cricket and, and watching it on TV. Sydney Creek Grand is just a very special place, it really is. It's much more intimate, even though it's not that, well, I guess it is smaller than Melbourne Creek Grand, but Melbourne Creek Grand is a little bit too cavernous for, uh, for, per, you know, for it to be personal. Now, I'll, I'll add a 4A layer on top of this question. What is your favourite cricket ground? to do a broadcast production from where the broadcast elements are easily set up and configured to make your job as easy as possible? Well, that would be Lords, of course. Yeah. Your favorite cricketer of all time? Doug Walters. Dougie Walters. KD Walters from Dungog. Dashing Doug from Dungog. Yeah, he was great. He, he was a great character on and off the field. He was um, one of the throwbacks to the time when there was a little bit less emphasis placed on fitness and after, after play activities, if you, know, if you get my drift, he was famous for starting a game of cribbage in the dressing room on the morning of a test match. Australia wins the toss, they're batting. Doug would bat four or five generally uh, in the order. And um, the wickets fell. He would have the cigarette, he'd have the Rothman cigarette He'd, if the wicket fell and he was up next, he'd have the pads on, be playing cribbage with the other guys, and he'd say to the guy, he'd put the cigarette down in the, in the ashtray, and he says, don't go past my turn for the deal because I might be back shortly. And then he'd go out and make 100, of course, then he'd come back. But he was one of those guys that, you know, drink all night and play great cricket all day. Your favourite non-cricket athlete of all time? Babe Dickerson. One more time. Babe Zaharias. Babe Zaharias. Oh, Babe Didrikson Zaharias. Yeah. Now, Peter, you're not old enough to have seen her play. No, I'm not. But I've just in in having done uh, having done some, you know, uh, the, producing the story of golf uh, documentary for uh, for PBS. That was uh, one of the most interesting stories I ever heard. What she did and what she had to go through. She's she's one of the great ones. But I guess uh, golf. Uh, the U.S. cricket team could have used Babe Didrikson Zaharias. Yeah, yeah, she was um, she was something that one, and Kathy Freeman's too. I like, Kathy Freeman's story is always a good one. She uh, she shot to fame early and did what she did in Sydney. Your favorite place to eat out on tour? A little bar in um, in Antigua called Putters. Great people and the food's great, and they're, and they're cricket tragics, of course. Your favorite beverage of any kind, alcoholic, non-alcoholic. I guess it'd have to be a Chewy's Old beer and New South Wales beer. Your favorite pizza topping? Sausage. 
Margarita with sausage. That's what'll do me. Your favorite movie of all time, and not not Crocodile Dundee, not one that you no, worked on. No, 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 no. Um, would be favorite film would be uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, wow. David Lean's film. Digging yep. deep, digging deep. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. The David Lean epics. Big yeah. fan. Yeah. Bridge on the River Kwai was another good one. Your last but not least, your favorite show to binge watch, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Paramount Plus, any other streaming service du jour. Yeah. What's your go-to? When an episode comes on, you just can't turn it off. Well, you have to say that about Seinfeld, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's like they're still funny for the 25 years later. Don't really get into a lot of the series per se that are made specifically for that. There have been some good ones. Mad Men was good. I like that a lot. Um, and I guess we did binge watch that. Just watch one more episode, just one more episode. But um, I think in terms of stuff coming on TV now that you can't get, if you're flipping around and you can't go past, it has to be Seinfeld. I wonder now if people growing up now would appreciate all the uh, George Steinbrenner related humor on that show with George working for the Yankees. Uh, that's right. That was so great. And and of course, um, there was an episode where, where, where Jerry had a reference to cricket too. I'll have to go and try and dig that up. And I love his description of Australia. He says, oh, you guys have that, uh, that flag, right? He, has, uh, he says, it's, um, it's like... Great Britain, but at night, which I think is very, very funny and sharp. <laughs> the Union Jack with the stars on it. It was like, it's just a, a very great observation, Jerry. I've never heard that one before, but that, that yeah. is yeah, like Great Britain, but at night. <laughs> I can't find any other way to describe it now that it's in my head. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Steep. Thank you so much for coming on at the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. Thank you. Give you the final word. Anything else that you want to say about yourself that people don't already know about you that you think they should I know? Think I've probably said too much, Peter, anyway, all along, but I do thank you for having me. And I've, um, I've watched a lot of your podcasts and maybe this is one that I'll miss. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you supporting the podcast. I know you're a Patreon supporter and watching the podcast in general and everything else that you do in the cricket world to make it a bigger, better sport in America and beyond, but especially in the U S cricket community, I think it was great for me at least to get to, to learn a bit more about you and hopefully other people who are watching or listening to this feel the same way. Cause there's an awful lot of people behind the scenes who play huge roles in the American cricket community that not a lot of people get to hear from. And uh, you're one of those people. And I had a lot more questions. We could have gone on for another hour or two at least, Peter, but I got to pick up my daughter from school. Yeah, you better go and do the things you need to do, Peter. <laughs> you you got to go and ha answer all your fan mail about the man cat too. So, <laughs> That's yeah. true, yes. I've got, I've got to pick up my daughter and then I've got to get back to doing screenshots about the man cats and the latest yeah. player who's leaving yeah. the non-strikers end early. But I'm definitely on your side about it. If the if the batsman has to stay behind, if the bowler has to bowl, stay behind the line to bowl, why shouldn't the batsman? It's simple. Well, and again, it's like that in any other sport. You know, football, watch the NFL every weekend. Every single time, offside, encroachment, false start, yeah. legal motion. It's, it's in the rules. There's no exceptions. Yeah. Zero yeah. exceptions are made. And, yeah. and there is a line there. Why is the yeah. line there if it's not meant it to be rejected? It's literally a line. There is literally a line that you can't cross. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, Peter. All right. Thank, Thank you again. You, All right. Talk to you soon. My thanks again to Peter Steep for coming on the podcast and giving us some insights, not just about his time with Alan Stanford, but all the stuff that he does behind the scenes that have made a pretty big impact on the American cricket community from a broadcasting perspective over the last couple decades. And he's going to keep on trucking along in that regard. I want to remind everybody, if you haven't already done so, to please support the podcast by going to patreon.com. Become a patriot! For as little as $3 a month, you help keep the podcast going on an episode-by-episode basis. And I also want to remind everybody to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube if you enjoy the video format, or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, and other podcasting platforms. That's it for this episode. I'm Peter Delapena reminding everybody, God bless America, and God bless American cricket. Cricket.